The Clixie Podcast with Tim Flagg. Insight, opinion and advice from the leading practitioners in digital marketing and e-commerce. It's taken so long for a lot of publishers to understand that a lot of advertisers don't just want a big number. It's trying to understand who their key readers are. Really getting to grips with their readership and their own data and understanding what their audiences want. This is the Click Z Digital Marketing Podcast, and I'm going to be talking to Andy Oakes. We'll be discussing what next for online advertising, the challenges of programmatic and best practice in content marketing. My guest on the podcast today is Andy Oakes. Andy has been a central figure in the UK media and digital scene for over a decade and is now managing director and co-founder of Blue Stripe Media, a PR and content marketing agency based in Soho, representing clients such as Propel, Byte London and Oban International. Prior to this, Andy was publisher of the now legendary New Media Age. He helped to launch the media briefing and latterly was the global managing director and head of content at The Drum, where he also founded the Digital Trading Awards and Programmatic Punch events. So Andy, I'd like to welcome you to the Clixie Digital Marketing Podcast. Thanks very much for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, likewise. And you've got a wealth of experience and expertise and insight into the world of online advertising that I'm really keen to, to delve into and find out more about. But first, let's start off by finding out a little bit more about you. So I wonder whether you could just tell us a bit more about your story, bring it to life and tell us how long you've been working in the world of advertising and publishing and then bring us right up to date and tell us a little bit more about what Blue Stripe Media does. Cool. OK, well, um, sadly, I started in publishing back in 1993, which was an awful long time ago uh, and actually had to be shown in my first week how to send emails, which was a, uh, a worrying thing. I suppose I really things started getting interesting when I moved to New Media Age, which was part of Centaur back in 2005. Uh, New Media Age really was the trade Bible at the time. It was a great time to be there because the first online advertising issues were starting to arise. Uh, we had a great team of journalists and we, I think we really got to the heart of the problems. Funny, you, know, you can fast forward now and, and this, half of the problems are still being addressed. Uh, however, from then, uh, in 2011, 2012, I moved to the drum. Um, I was employee number one in London. And when I left, they had 52 people in London and offices in New York and Singapore. So I think I did a reasonable job for those guys as well. Yeah. Um, left the start of this year, mainly because I didn't want to be the oldest man still in publishing, um, <laughs> but also because I've always had this itch about starting my own agency and it was time to scratch it. So that's what I'm doing now. Um, Blue Stripe is an agency for the digital industry, and we specialize in PR, marketing, and content marketing. Uh, the aim is to get to these guys who are so busy doing great work, they forget about marketing themselves. And uh, there are a lot of those people around. Um, and I also wanted to just kind of you know loop back to what the title was you worked on at the beginning new media age now and i remember it yeah. you know, back in the sort of late 90s early noughties i think when it was first of coming out then new media doing sort of like little quotation marks new media as it was then seems such a sort of modern thing but actually now if you were to call something new media people wouldn't really know what you meant by that by that kind of concept so what are the biggest changes that you've seen in your career that have happened in online advertising can you maybe just pull out two or three of the biggest changes yeah of course i mean it's funny I mean, at the time our target audience was the weird bespectacled guy normally sat in the corner and nobody understood what he did um 
the digital marketing world was a strange, weird and actually quite a small place. These days, it's just marketing. It, that's that's what's changed. Uh, there's an acceptance. Sadly, I'm not sure how much has changed in online advertising. Yes, we've got better at doing it programmatically. Yes, the systems behind it are more complex and there's a load more money plowing through it. But I mean, as I've said on lots of panels recently, you know, in 2005, uh, if I dig out some of the old copies of NMA, we're still we were talking about ad misplacement. We were talking about uh, potential fraud. The sad thing is that as much as things have changed, they've pretty much stayed the same. Um, with just more sophistication. Well, I'd love to dig into some of those themes a bit more as we can get into what is programmatic and, and what are the challenges yeah. specifically around, around that. But has there been a, a change in um, understanding of the best practice for digital advertising, do you think? Uh, particularly the people in, in agencies and um, brand marketers as well. Do you, have you seen them come on a journey? Do you think we were reaching a level of maturity now? Absolutely. I think the key to that is the, the the bigger level experiences within the brands. What's happening there is that, you know, if, if we go back to 2005, the reason people were using agencies so much because nobody within in-house knew what they were doing. It was a very hard, very tough and under, difficult to understand market. You know, you fast forward 12 years from there now, and actually there are a lot more experience within brands. There's a lot more understanding and there's a lot more demand as well. Uh, and demands in different ways. People are not only they have a demand to do the uh, do these things, but also their understanding of the market has grown. So they demand a lot more results. They demand a lot more in terms of transparency and they're demanding a lot more in terms of measurement as well. So actually, I think it's the brands have a huge role to play in keeping the industry on its toes and making sure that they're doing what they say they're doing. In agencies, I think things have changed slightly. I think I think actually in the last couple of years, more than most, the agencies have begun to understand that they need to open up a bit. The, the transparency needs to be there. You know, you can't keep sticking things through your own systems, through your own trade desk and ask and understand you need to understand that people will question you nowadays because the brands are just so much more switched on and it's interesting you mentioned you know the role of the brands in driving that change in the last couple of months we've seen procter and gamble in the us really leading that that, that sort of mission almost to bring greater yeah. transparency and accountability into on the world of online advertising I know last year and, and a bit this year, the IAB have been running a number of different initiatives as well, their deal and lean initiatives to try and sort things out as well. Who, who do you see as being the most important player in being able to bring in greater transparency and accountability? It will be driven by the brands and you're starting to see this now, but probably not in the in the way that we expected. You know, we're, we're still going through the fallout of the Times investigation of Google's practices. As such, a lot of brands pulled out. Now, did a lot of brands pull out because they were genuinely worried about their brand safety or did a lot of brands pull out because they thought they might be able to push Google for a better deal? Um, you know, the, the uh, jury is probably out on that one. What that does mean, though, is that the, the cat's out of the bag now. People are looking at this a lot harder. People are wanting to see a lot more transparency. They're wanting to understand where their where their buck is being spent and they're wanting to understand who is seeing their ads. There's been a lot of complacency and the brands played their part in that. And if you keep paying cheap prices you need to understand that you know cheap traffic is never going to be great traffic uh but there's been this sort of this complicit hiding of that fact so you know and everyone understood that well we know it's cheap but you know what we hit we might we're probably hitting some kpis so we're going to get away with it yeah. and i think what's happened now is that the brands have decided do you know what we need to take this a lot more seriously this issue is not going away the market's not going away 
we might as well understand how to do it properly. So the the brands hold all the power this time, and I'm pleased I'm pleased for that because I think that they've been the poor guys have been uh, sat on the edge for too long. It used to go to a lot of these ad tech shows, and it was tech vendors talking to agencies, talking back to tech vendors, and people forgot about actually bringing publishers and advertisers into the room. Luckily, we've got away from that now. But for too long, the tech guys just spoke to each other because it, you know, it made them happy what they were doing. And I know what you mean in terms of the bigger brands now being able to have a, a focus on what they're getting, what their KPIs are, what the return on investment is. And that is definitely coming through in the way they're briefing their media agencies. But what about the companies who are slightly more uh, medium sized or even small uh, brands? And they're, they're trying to figure out the best way for them to get uh, accountable and responsible advertising through maybe agencies or even direct. Do you think they have enough information? Do you think the the system is set up to um, help them at the moment or do they still get left out in the cold a bit? If I was a brand now and I was going into this blind, I'd just go and talk to Facebook or I'd buy it direct. It's not that hard to do. I know who I'm talking to. I know what I'm going to get. My worry with the Google fallout is, and a lot of the brand safety issues at the moment is, that's what's going to happen. People are going to think, you know what? I'll go do it direct. Or I'll just go talk to Facebook because I can see it. It's an easily set up account and I'll do it that way. The role of the agencies is interesting because they've got to redefine themselves a little bit, haven't they? Rather than just be the middlemen, they've got to be you know, much more consultative now. They've got to be much more helpful and they've got to help clients uh, get through the choppy waters of digital advertising a lot, make a lot more effort than they have done in the past. And then it goes back to this word about transparency as well, yeah. because in the, the old days, I mean, when I was briefing my media agency, I, I'd know that, you know, they, they'd take their fee, obviously, and we'd agree that. But then internally, there'd be all these internal fees as well for an in-house trading desk or an online department or a social media department, each of those sort of adding um, an extra level of fee, which wasn't being spent on media. And I think the yeah. IAB's figure last year was saying like 56% of the media spend was actually going on middlemen, whereas yeah. the Guardian ran an experiment and it was 80%. So there's clearly yeah. a, a lack of, of transparency. Is, is that something that you think that programmatic has um, it made a worse problem or has that um, helped solve it? Well, you know, the, the idea in practice is fine. You know, it should work. We should be able to get instant reports, instant uh, efficiencies, and it, it should work. But, you know, one of the great lies of the programmatic world has been its efficiency. When I was at the drum, I was having to buy in more people to set this up. It was costing us a fortune to run uh, run efficiently. The transparency issue has never gone away. In many ways, we we put too much of it on programmatic. I mean, if you want to, you know, look at the TV market that's based on uh, was it thirty thousand households? How on earth can that be the right way to measure something? Uh, it's it's not representative and it can't be right. So we're we're setting we're putting digital to a higher standard. We're hoping it should achieve it. Sadly, and I, and the, my worry is that. You know, the, the bad guys in this space are always a bit, a bit that bit beyond where the good guys are. You've only got to look back to Methbot, any bot, any of the, that sort of issues from the start of, start of this year to see that that's still the case. And we've started to speak about programmatic now. So I wonder whether we could just get a quick bit of background on that, because I know that this is an area that you're really an expert in and you've seen the whole evolution of programmatic. Could you give us a really quick potted history of the rise of programmatic over the last well probably decade i suppose and then what you think the key developments have been within the last 12 months maybe i first started looking at the space when we had you know you had the network set up blind networks all sorts of things going on i've really started getting involved in the market when the iab uh, was starting to set up the iash the internet branch of what they do 
And I thought that was an interesting step because somebody was starting to regulate it a little bit. Now, you talk to people who are involved in it back then, um, to the fantastic Julia Smith, and she'll tell you that, you know, it was a bit of the Wild West. There was so much going on that nobody understood. Then the sort of the the, the bigger tech guys came in, the Rubicons of this world, the App Nexus guys, and they arrived with a certain amount of, you know, the, the, here are the, uh, the white knights, here are the good guys. And it was very interesting to see how the agency market reacted. There was there was a certain amount of suspicion. Who who on earth are these guys? You know, the r- rumors put around that, oh, well, hang on, are these guys actually doing what they're saying? Is it actually just a room of guys with spreadsheets? How can this possibly work? As ever with the digital digital scene, what happens is is that money follows hype, and there was a huge amount of hype, and then everybody got into it, and then you got into what really caused the problems we have, in that there were a flood of companies just giving offering me two options. Uh, a lot of VC backed companies with, who literally said, see what those guys are doing over there. That looks good, let's go and do it. So at around, let's, let's think 2013, 2014, when the big guys were starting to do their IPOs, Wall Street uh, didn't want them. And the reason Wall Street didn't want them is because nobody understood what they did. It was, an, the market had got too big, too bloated and too fast without any real explanation. You had the start of the scandals. You had the whole, uh, I think it was the rocket fuel Mercedes incident. Uh, there was a lot going on like that. Nobody quite understood what was going on in the outside world. And again, I bring it back that there are, you know, there's always the inner circle of the tech guys all talking to each other. But that really wasn't good enough because the publishers didn't quite understand what was happening and the advertisers didn't understand where it was, what was happening. And that was all the, always the angle I took and that was always the editorial angle uh, that I advise my guys to talk about, you know, what does this mean to a publisher? What does this mean to an advertiser? The tech guys eventually will, will look after themselves. So fast forward to 2017, and I think actually the publishers have, have learned to stand up for themselves a little bit. Um, we've seen some interesting developments like the Pangaea Alliance. Uh, we've seen some interesting developments from Wanifra, from, from the um, World Federation of Advertisers. People are, you know, starting to stand up for the rights of the advertiser and for the publisher. And it's made the market stand up a bit. The tech guys have suddenly thought, right, we need to be better at this. Uh, because they, you know, frankly, in some cases, they couldn't have been much worse. It has been a real journey, I think, in terms of understanding from the from the brand perspective as well. I mean, we talked about it a little bit earlier on in terms of the brand marketers need to now understand how programmatic works. They can't yeah. just give it to the agency and expect the agency to do everything. They need to be able to hold them accountable. So do you think that over the the last few, the last year or so that brand marketers who are controlling the budget ultimately, that they really understand how programmatic works? I don't know if they understand entirely how it works, but I think they know the results they should be getting. And with the best of them, well, they don't need to know really how it works. But what they need to understand is what they're being sold, what they've been promised, and what they feel that, you know, they, what they see as success, is that happening? Is it not? You know, let's let's not overcomplicate things. At the end of the day, this is just another route to market. It's an advertising medium. It's, it's a way to get their ad on a site in front of the right eyeballs. So really, they don't need to know the ins and outs uh, of, of, of every little bit of tech in the stack. What they need to know is that they're getting what they paid for. And more and more, instead of being dazzled by uh, the, the intermediaries, they're now saying, actually, look, this is what I want. This is what I'm paying for. Where the hell's my results? I think it's more it's more of an understanding of you should be driving my results rather than telling me what I should be expecting. They've got a lot harder on this, as they have with every other digital discipline. And again, it just comes down to simple marketing. They understand the KPIs they've got to hit. They understand what they say they've been sold. Uh, so they understand that they've you know that what's got to happen. 
it's more just uh, holding more people accountable. Yeah, I think you're right. It really comes down to the results which will come from programmatic. I mean, it's just another way of buying media at the end of the day. It's just another technology. That's exactly what it is, yeah. We'll come back and, and dive into programmatic a bit more and talk about what the future holds for programmatic in just a second. But we're going to take a quick break. Hi there, it's Tim here, and I've got a favour to ask. If you're enjoying listening to the Clixie podcast today, could you please leave us a quick review? Just navigate to the review tab in iTunes or Stitcher and either share some stars or leave a comment. Not only would I be really, really grateful, but this also helps other people to discover the podcast. Thanks so much in advance. Now, back to the podcast. So before the break, we started talking about programmatic and we were talking about the role of the publishers and how they've been partly the sort of the weaker party in this relationship and started to fight back in the last couple of years and really put together alliances and ways of showing the value that they have to advertisers. So Andy, I wondered whether I could get your perspective because you're both sort of publisher and advertiser in a sense. Um, what do you think are the, are the really big challenges which the publishing industry has been facing um, over the last couple of years? The huge problem that publishers have been facing uh I can name two, and they're called Facebook and Google, and they're insurmountable to a certain extent. Uh, one of the things I found since being out of the publishing world is that actually, you know, there's no need to be reliant on other people's platforms. Um, I can get, well, we've, we've found with some of our clients, we can get much better results working off social media platforms than necessarily running through a media owner. Now, with my publisher hat back on, I would say, actually, well, that's, that's fair enough up to a point. But everybody still loves context. Everybody still loves that association with a bigger brand. So that's still going to work. The problem that they're going to have is that no publisher really is going to maintain profitability and, and you know upward revenue projections on a pure online ad basis. That's just not going to work. Uh, and you can look at look at the Guardian, look at the New York Times, look at even the Daily Mail uh, or the Mail Online. It, it's it's never going to work purely on that. They're all suffering. Where they're going to win is looking at other methods. And all the publishers are doing that. You've only got to look at publishers looking very carefully at what they're doing on mobile. They're looking very carefully on what they're doing with native and their own content marketing. Most of the good publishers are bringing content marketing in-house. They understand that they need to be offering clients an awful lot more. Publishers have always got to stay one step ahead of the market. They didn't do for many years. They're getting there now. There's a lot of good innovative publishing work being done. You know, there's some really interesting publishers coming onto the scene. Uh, I would point to someone like Axios coming over from the States, who are in the political and tech sphere, who are doing stuff so well, charging a very big subs fee for a lot of their premium products. But these guys, uh, they're scaling up quickly, but they're not advertising reliant. I think that's going to be the shift, isn't it? Being able to find probably more niche audiences, but they're much more engaged and much more focused around a, a particular area. Absolutely. I mean, it's taken so long for a lot of publishers to understand that a lot of advertisers don't just want a big number. You know, and I've worked in media owners where the, you know, the, someone will say, oh, we've got to get a big number, got to get a big number. And I said, publishers have only start in the last few years have started to understand that the big number is not necessarily the best number. Uh, it's trying to understand who their key readers are, really getting to grips with their readership and their own data and understanding what their audiences want. Uh, and there's been a lot of work done over that. And there's some really great examples, especially here in the UK at the moment, I think. 
could you maybe share a couple of those examples? I mean, really interesting. You say that it's it's not so much about the quantity; it's more about the quality. Can yeah. you just break down what what type of things you're you're talking about when you talk about quality? Well, let me let me give you two examples of publishers I look at, and I think that those guys do it really well. And one of them is, is is probably slightly unusual because it's not one of the big guys. But have a look at what incisive media do in the B two B world. Hmm. Um, John Barnes over there is a very very clever guy and understood this whole thing a lot before before I think anybody else really did in the UK. Uh, and they've really segmented their markets. They understand it, understood the value of their data and really made very clever and informed decisions early on. Moving over to more the the, the B2C or the, the consumer media, Dennis Publishing have just consistently got it right as well and hired great people. You know, you've got a great stable of people over there, people like Paul Hurd, people like Paul Lomax, really clever switched on guys who know the industry very, very well. And then the third company I would always pull out, who just do things consistently well, they're innovative, despite the market they're in, is the FT. They've always been slightly ahead of the curve. The, the way that they've, again, understood their data, but understood the value of their audience has been fantastic. Whilst they're in a certainly unique position, one of the things you can always take from the FT is just trust in the value of your audience, trust in the value of your data, and stand up and say, yeah, you know what, you will have to pay more because we know we're worthwhile. And I've admired them for a long time for that. And when you were talking about the audiences and getting that understanding of them, getting a, a deeper profile, obviously, if you're a subscription site like the FT, yeah. then you, you're able to find out more information. Is there also now a move towards trying to profile the audience more to be able to, if you're a publisher, try and understand their interests and bring and package that up as a as a, an audience segment, which is more valuable, even though it might have a smaller base? Yeah, absolutely, there is. Um, and you know, obviously, people doing that in lots of ways. You know, people a publisher loves it when someone logs in with their Facebook profile um, because all of a sudden you've dropped hundreds of points of data onto them so that really works but you know there are some great tech companies out there quantcast will be as some guys you know if that's the thing you need to learn to go and do go and talk to those guys that's exactly how what they've been doing um it's difficult for a lot of legacy publishers i know it was difficult for us at the drum for us to get our heads around how we were going to do this we'd never wanted to set up a paywall we never wanted to do stuff we never wanted to charge people for our content mm. um and initially you know and through a large sort of acquisition of data through our newsletters and through social means, we started to get a much better understanding of what the audience wanted. But, you know, you've got to get people out of their mindsets. You've got to understand that, you know, a lot of the smaller to medium publishers come from a print background. You know, they, they know a postal address, uh, a job title and a name about someone. And that's all they've known for years. So getting people to understand, hey, look, we can we can develop a lot more richer data sets here has been hard. They are all getting better at it now. I think last year we saw a lot of people, real, a lot of publishers realising that there was a significant challenge because of ad blockers, for example, taking yeah. between 20 and 80 percent of the available inventory, depending on what the demographic of the title was. That seems yeah. to have sort of levelled off a bit. I mean, I know that, you know, there have been reports saying that's, you know, peaked at the rounds of 24 percent or something. Um, and a lot of publishers I've been speaking to are saying that sort of normalised. They've accounted for that in their budgets now. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you think there is a underlying problem with the way in which ads are being shown to consumers at the moment is there is there a reason why people users are using ad blockers the main reason the people using ad blockers was because essentially they interfered in the reading and they interfered in the performance of the site sites just weren't good enough to take some of the heavy lifting that was required for some of the more modern ad units now you're right uh, there's been a real leveling off in in use of ad blockers there's a, there's a few factors in that i think a few people have 
you know, that some of the braver publishers have said, well, you, you can't see my content then. Uh, and that's annoyed a lot of people. A lot of sites have decided, well, you know, a lot of sites have had work done on them. They're speeding up. A lot of the ad formats uh, are now served in a way so they don't require quite so much heavy lifting. It's not that, you know, the battle's not won. It's just the battle's got a bit quieter, I think. The ad blocking world is a strange one. They've not quite worked out their own financial models yet. Trying to work out what uh, is happening over at Shine, these other guys, how they're going to make their money is a strange one. I'm also interested in, you know, and it started to happen last year and then it didn't, you know, sort of telco level ad blocking. That could be a real game changer, but it seems to have stalled. You know, I think the, the world's moved on slightly. Again, it's like I said earlier, the digital market moves in hype circles. So at the moment, we're not talking about that. We're, we're talking about um, bots, fraud and misplacement. But, you know, the world of ad blocking is not going away. Yeah, definitely want to come back to bots and fraud in a second. Um, in terms of, though, the, the way in which the ad blockers are what the, what they're actually doing they're blocking ads but it seems to be that the individual users are also less happy with the way in which their data is being collected now there seems to be a, a sort of a an insurmountable challenge here between on one side the publishers and, and advertisers who want yeah. to get more and more personal data from the users in order to be able to for a publisher personalize the ad the, the content and from an advertiser perspective make the ad much more targeted much more relevant and increase their roi and on the other side you've got the consumers who are sort of saying well why should we give you our personal data you know how, how did that happen how did 20 years ago when you set up the online advertising world you ended up um being able to put all these cookies and and sort of be able to capture that data and of course as we know gdpr is everywhere at the moment it's coming in Absolutely. next year what do you foresee as the the future of that value exchange, which is really at the heart of online advertising? Well, it's a heart and head moment on this one, Tim. My heart says that I hope people will understand that journalism costs, good journalism costs, and the world more than ever needs great journalists and great reporting, and that's not cheap. So I'm hoping that more people are thinking, actually, you know what? I'll let I'll I'll look at that ad. I'll let that I'll let them take a bit of my data because I want to read what these guys have written. My head says, actually, that's never going to happen too much. There are, you know, maybe it has settled down to 18%, whatever it is. Those people aren't coming back. They're not going to, they're not going to come back to reading the established media. You know, they've, they've turned the blockers on. They've been turned off from reading certain sites. They're not going to get access to other sites. And then until media owners work out a proper subscription model that people will pay for, uh, and for an ad-free world, then, then that's not going to happen. I, I just think we're in a we're in a, we're in a bit of a tipping point moment at the moment, aren't we? In that you know everyone thought the world would shift to native, and that didn't quite happen. Everyone said that well, well, you know there'll be micro micro payments for subs. People will pay for that instead. That's not quite worked. In all honesty, I don't know quite where this one's going to go. I just think it's the, the battle's died down a bit at the moment. People are sort of retrenching. Publishers are working on the fact that we have, if we offer a better experience then maybe, maybe people won't mind that we'll stick a couple of ads in them. Certainly people have decided that whacking great homepage takeovers, uh, intrusive pop-ups, autoplay, those sort of things aren't necessarily a great thing. And they're a lot more sensitive to that. I say certain that there are still some publishers who are very, very bad at that and some big ones. But uh, I'm hoping that the more intelligent publishers will lead the way. Um, could we just go back to maybe sort of talking a little bit more about the, the type of data which could be collected and specifically regarding intention? 
because at the moment, the way in which a consumer's intent is captured can be as blunt as they visited a website in this category in the last 30 days. And that represents, you know, makes them an auto intender, for example. We're starting to see more and more types of data being layered into the the ad exchange coming in from, say, you know, psychographical uh, segmentations based upon personality types or experience type data coming in as well, or location data, all these other things coming in. Now, do you think that um, being able to access and, and bring together that data is going to be one of the key things we're seeing, seeing over the next couple of years for the future? Absolutely. I mean, look, that, that is, it's being led by Google and Amazon, let's be honest. Uh, Amazon are extraordinarily good at this. Um, they, they, you know, we get to a point, they know that I'm running slow on my single malt, it seems, and are serving me ads for it straight away. Google as well. But it's, 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 it's very much within the wall gardens at the moment, isn't it? I think that's where this really, really works. How are publishers going to work with that? Well, I don't know that they are, to be honest. I think that there's, there's a, publishers are going to have a problem getting involved with that. I'm really interested to see how Google will work with this. You know, I'm very much a fan of how they integrate the calendar and how they're integrating maps, how they're integrating shopping and, and searches within into this data. Uh, I think that, you know, it, it's the big players will have to lead us through this one. Uh, that might be viewed as a bit scary. It might be scared, might be viewed that, oh, right, these are the guys who we've, I mean, I've, I've already said that they're big problems for publishers. But we have to rely on them to sort of pull this one through, I think. I take what you say about, uh, you know, it, it's being driven by Facebook and, mm. and Google. And that's certainly one of the challenges which I think publishers are facing um, from this this huge duopoly who's not only able to innovate, but also has um, the lion's share of the market. But if the publishers are able to point to the quality of their audiences, as we were discussing before, and they can layer on to that as well, um, an understanding of purchase intent yeah. um, through getting some of these these data. Do you think there's a there's a role to play almost beyond native for contextual advertising um, on premium sites? Absolutely. When you're tracking a reader through the sort of content they're going through, when you're writing content, and this is a thing I've been finding recently, but when you're writing content, the intent is to drive people to a, to a certain action. The market is getting better at that. Publishers are, have understood that they need to un- open up a little bit to this. In the old days of church and state, whilst they need to be maintained up to a point, have been relaxed slightly in that whilst I would never advocate name journalists working on content marketing plans, you can quite easily and you should easily be able to slip decent content marketing within to the, into the news stream of, uh, of sites. It, it's, the publishers are going to have to hold their nose and see a little bit here. You know, and the publisher's market's never always the fastest to move, as I you, know, you can testify from my many years in it. It's it, that you, you're right. It is that added level of data that will make the difference. But at the end of the day, publishers aren't going to have a choice, really, are they? Because, as I've said, they're being so stretched financially in other ways that they're going to need to understand every advantage that they can drive. So just to then look towards the future, we've talked about quite a few different areas here. We've talked about how, you know, programmatic has been one of the main disruptive forces, even though it's just a technology over the last few years. Uh, And we've talked about data and and ad blockers. Do you have any sense of what's coming next? What, What are the things on the horizon which advertisers and marketers listening to this should be starting to uh, look into now? I think almost we're going back a few years and a lot of advertisers looking now thinking, right, I, you know, where am I going to put my digital spend? Am I going to invest it? Am I going to put it in the hands of an agency and say, go buy me audience. I'm not so worried about context. I don't think that's going to, I just don't see that happening as much at the moment. 
you know, we've not touched on it yet, but certainly at Adweek um, not so long ago, fake news was everywhere. Now, you know, do I want my ads appearing in that environment? Do I want my ads appearing in YouTube quite so much, given the issues we've seen there? Hmm. I think what we're going to see is the the rise of them. The markets are becoming a lot more involved in the process from a context perspective and saying, and always taking things back 20 years and saying, I want to work with defined titles. I want to work with known quantities. So whilst all the tech is in place, I think we're going to see actually a lot more human intervention and people saying, okay, that's interesting. I might not give someone much of my budget to programmatic though. I want to work with five key publishers. And that's, you know, that's a result of sadly where we've got it wrong a bit over the years. But marketers are going to take more control. Interesting. And I think that will ultimately lead to a better experience for the user. I hope so, yeah. We, we talked before about you know, the, the fact that they're being sort of bombarded with lots of ads and you know, that's potentially one of the reasons why they're installing an ad blocker. But actually, if the both the content and the ads are much more relevant to actually what they're interested in, then it's going to be a better, yeah. better result for everybody. But it's, And it's interesting as well how actually the social sites are working with that. As I said earlier, pretty much at the start, you know, we've been working with clients and they've said, well, actually, let's just work with this within the confines of suggest uh, maybe LinkedIn, but it's a trusted environment. Let's see, you know, let's work with this. Let's create our content and see how this is going to work for us. And let's shut off the other attitude, the other, other routes to it. It's been a real interest in experimenting on almost platformless publishing uh, and to see, see the results you can get there. Uh, and that's why publishers are going to look and think, that's a bit scary. So what type of experiments have you been running there? I mean, you, you say you've been running experiments. Have they been to test the receptiveness of the audience or the just performance? Can you give us a bit more uh, background? All we've been doing is working with uh, with certain clients and, suge- and suggesting to them that, that let's put out opinions in a way that you, you might think you would work with a magazine. But let's let's really test the boundaries of what you can do with, suggest link, for instance, LinkedIn. LinkedIn's had a bit of a renaissance over the last year or so, I think. Uh, I, I've certainly started paying a lot more attention to it, and, and not just because I was looking for a job for a while. It's much, much more because they're rewarding you for great content. Now, we all know, you know, every decent organisation now is, has understood that great content has to be produced for social. You can't just get away with hoping that your organic stuff will rise to the surface otherwise. It, it's just playing around, making sure that we're, we're working with the right data sets, going to data sets that weren't necessarily your first choice and understanding how that's happening. It, it's really been you know, right across the board. Uh, and because on a, on a micro level, these, buying an audience on these sites isn't that expensive. And you can test quite relatively cheaply just to see whether you can get a better reaction. You know, back in the day, some of my clients, their traditional routes to market would have been, let's put this in campaign, let's put it in marketing week and sort of hope it would be it, do the right thing. We know now, now know that marketers uh, and the whole industry are reading so many other different sites, have so many different influencer points they get their information in so many different ways. It's not really from the big titles anymore, although they're in a, there's still a certain role for them to play. But it's it's understanding that you need to hit the audience wherever they might be picking up their information from, um, whether that be through social channels, whether that be through the mainstream press, whether it be through sort of some of the, the secondary levels of uh, titles on the edge of the market which are very interesting at the moment as well. Now, I know that marketing to marketers is actually quite a tough job. So when I was uh, you know, doing courses in marketing for IDM and we're trying to get more marketers there, they are obviously a sceptical bunch because we're marketers. And that's yeah. very much the challenge I imagine you probably had when you were trying to get in front of them with uh, with the drum and, and you know, in previous titles as well. So you really understand that B2B world. And it sounds like now you're using that insight with your 
clients at, at Blue Stripe. But I put the challenge to you, though, that the, what we're finding now, particularly on LinkedIn, is that there is so much good content on there that it's very difficult to stand out against all of that noise of, of quality. So what would you be advising your clients to do in that scenario? I would very much be advising them to undertake, do, again, do some testing, put a couple of hundred quid in a pot and, and, and just work out what you can do with some paid audiences, promote to the right levels and go talk to LinkedIn. You know, there I have, they're a much more receptive bunch than they used to be. Go and tell them, I want to hit these audiences. Uh, tell, tell me the right ways of doing it. You know, for far too long and, uh, you know, clients uh, I've had throughout the drums history, and through, you know, they stick something on their own blog and under, couldn't understand why nobody would come to see it. Um, and say, well, we don't think content marketing works that well for us. Well, no, because all they've done is, you know, you've hidden it. Uh, you know, the, the, the world is no more build it and they will come. Hmm. Uh, it's build it, tell them for Christ's sake it's there, tell them again and hit them five times over a a four-day period uh, with promoted tweets. Exactly. It's (laughs) it's production plus distribution, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, and that's where the clever publishers were getting it right. And and actually it was one of the the inspirations behind my business is that once you can work on distribution models and have and create great content then actually you're getting somewhere looking at linkedin as as i do often as well um you have now a, a, just a continuous feed of, of great content and it, it's almost overwhelming in a way you, i can't process all of the information on there and yeah i suppose i get like a low level understanding um, and a, a bit of brand awareness for some of the companies yeah. there but they really i mean t- to really get into my consideration they have to be hitting me quite a quite a few times a week and publishing huge amounts of content for the for the average size company is that really realistic as long as you understand its place to and what i'm not advocating is that you can totally make your you know make your company huge purely by linkedin it's it's part of a process with all of our clients we would suggest you know what you've got, you've got to see it as part of the mix you know back it up with appearances at live events back it up with decent pr but as you said marketers are a tough bunch to sell to Mainly because they, a lot of them, you know, it's the going back to the old ad, ad adage that the uh, uh, physician needs to heal, them, heal themselves. Yeah. They're the hardest ones to convince when actually they know they know what they should be doing. Uh, they just never apply it to themselves. So, you know, the marketing mix is important now as it was 20 years ago. But if LinkedIn's where your audience is, then you need to be there as well for a time. Yeah. If Twitter's where your audience is, again, through localization, doing it properly, doing it to segmented audiences, do it that way. And yes, if they're reading the trades, of course, make sure you've, you've paid for things in there. You've got prom- proper promoted content through that and your PR model in place. But don't believe just because you've set up your company website and you think you've got a great product that users are going to come and find you. No, it's very much about that distribution, isn't it? Absolutely. So in terms of establishing what the best type of content is, how do you go about that process? I know it'll change depending on what the client is and their product and whole different, what their target audience is, etc. But what, what's the process you go through to you know, establish whether you should be you know, writing a white paper, um, doing a podcast, even a webinar, those kind of things? There are a lot of processes in play there, Tim. I mean, very basically we'll we'll go through what's worked in the past we'll go and see what their competitors have done we'll understand first and foremost who the hell do they want to sell their product to who's that audience where are they now you know it might be that quite often you know you're selling a product actually to cfos and you're not going to reach a lot of those through the marketing press have we got to find more financial models of getting there it's you have to take a lot more time and, and actually don't be afraid to tell your client that what they've been doing is wrong and back it up with data Again, one of the things, the frustrations I had when I was a publisher is that someone would come to us and say, well, I'm not sure our campaign with you worked. 
And I say, well, okay, what, what didn't happen? And they, well, we just didn't, I don't get a feeling it worked for us. Uh, where I could, you know, so now everything we do, we back up with data. Uh, we'll give clients a lot of results of what was happening with their content. And if it's failed, it's, you know, we're very upfront with us. Well, you know, that didn't work. But, you know, we can learn from that. Let's move on and let's make sure that we understand why it didn't work. Was it the audience? Was it the style? I'd love to say there was an easy way of doing it. And I've got the magic uh, the, the silver bullet to do that that would be a great usp for your agency yeah if, of course if i did i'm not going to put it on your podcast <laughs> fair enough um so just in terms of the the way in which the uh, the content works within the marketing mix it, it's never going to be that silver bullet as, as you say it's one of those things that's going to take a bit of time and, and the reason we're also keen on content marketing course was driven by the importance of search engines and search engine yeah. optimization so one of the challenges that, that I've often found when I've been working on content campaigns with clients is that, as you say, they always want the results now. And, and of course, they want them now because yeah. you know, they're, they're investing their money. They want to see the results now. And I think there's that stat from um, HubSpot, which says something like 63% of their traffic comes from posts which are over six months long. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so we know as content marketers, it's going to take quite a bit of time really before all those wonderful pages that we've been crafting on the blog and the, the downloadable white papers before they're all going to start getting uh, ranked and shared, etc. And, you know, even if you've got someone working on building all the links, it's going to take time. So yeah. I suppose the far, the fast track to that you're saying is almost going through some of these social platforms, LinkedIn in particular, um, is another route maybe working with publishers going back to that route. Um, what what would you your advice be to somebody who's saying, well, look, I need to get results quicker than six months? If speed is of the essence, yes, do go talk to the publishers. There's some very clever guys out there now. But, you know, tell them your ideas, but tell them the outcomes. You, you, people need to be treating publishers a little bit more like agencies. Uh, and, and this is something I found even whilst in publishers, you know, they need to be given, here's a problem. Uh, and here's what we want to happen. Now, you, you I'm going to task you with a way of making that happen. Now, you know, back in the day, years ago, we used to have creative sales teams. and now we have, But now content marketing studios within publishers are doing some really good stuff at working that out. Uh, and they're very good at understanding the better ones will understand their audience very, very well. And also understand when, when a publisher gives you advice and they say, actually, we don't think that will work. Listen to them. If, if if you they don't think that their their audience will work for you, the better publishers will say, I'm sorry, we shouldn't, we won't take your money on that because you'll not, it won't work for you, which is very hard for publishers to do, especially in this day and age. Um, but publishers have got to learn when they got, they can't help but offer different ways of being able to do it. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point. It goes back to what we were discussing earlier on in terms of the publishers have always had that relationship with their audience. And now more than at any time they have at their disposal the ability to capture data and to profile and really understand their audience in a, a much more effective way. So that's really, I suppose, the opportunity combined with their obvious skill set of being able to produce great content, combine those together, they're in, they're in a very powerful position. Just thinking then about the future of the content marketing world, what you see as being this, the big opportunities within content marketing obviously you're quite excited about it you just moved into that space um with a new agency so what are the things which you're excited about i, I think it's that acceptance now it's, it's understanding the where, where an audience knows it's being marketed to marketed to but doesn't doesn't hate it um you know you can wheel out obviously examples about red bull and, and all those sort of things um but i'm much more interested to see how much smaller players are, are going to work with 
you know the real mix of, of, of channels available and say and for readers to understand uh, and viewers to understand however you know this is paid for but the content level is as good as i'm reading so in terms of innovation i'm not sure how much there will be but what i'm really want to see is is quality levels going up you want to see that actually content marketing isn't necessarily native advertising you know there was a about two years ago this constant argument well what is content marketing what is native is that is it one and the same well it's not because i think native has certainly been caught up a little bit in the whole uh new you know six stories you might want to read at the bottom of the comment section mm. uh proper content marketing pro uh, is no much more now about having to be of a such a high quality that the reader will not blink when they get to it and that's why you see so many ex-journalists in the field and that's why you see some really great work coming out now because i mean i'm talking to people now i talk to people and work with people who, who are writing as well if not better than some of the publications they're appearing in because of their track record uh most of the big agent big pr and marketing agencies will have an ex-journalist on staff to, to be able to guide them in that respect also most of the publishers will have their own guidelines the better publishers will anyway about what should, what their readers should see so it's it's about everybody taking a bit of responsibility from my side you know in terms of my agency and working with my clients i've got to make sure that that quality quality level is very very high because i want people to read it and from the publisher's side they've got to make sure that when, when it comes to them that that quality level is so high because they they value their own readers so whilst i don't you know what i don't have a crystal ball that'll tell us exactly what the new innovations will be but i do know what i want want to see happen and so, so i say quality has to be driving everything and it's quite interesting to see you know on, on one side of the industry the publishers are obviously under quite a bit of pressure from all the things we've discussed before about you know the shrinking revenues um, yeah and a lot of ex-journalists moving away from those publishers, then finding jobs in this burgeoning content marketing space where all the money is is going. So it's it's actually quite interesting to see both sides of that uh, of that happening. Well, well, it is. I mean, I, you know, just a very obvious examples that you know what I used to slave over writing my column on a weekly basis, and uh, you know when I finish this, I've got to go back to slaving on a a piece of content marketing which I'm taking as much time over, as much care over. But, you know, making sure that my right message is within it. It doesn't take any less time and it doesn't take any less thought. And it actually sometimes takes a bit more skill to have to do. So, you know, you do have to work hard at this. One of the things I wanted to ask about for, for a lot of our audience who are listening to this, they might be either starting their career in, in advertising and marketing or just even thinking about maybe moving to a different part of it. What advice would you have now as someone at the beginning of their career in, in advertising and marketing about how best to get the right skills what what should they be doing what should they be learning oh you know what i wish i'd done right at the start is learn read 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 and read we've said a couple of times over the last hour there's so much information out there there's so much best practice uh there's so much good stuff you can go and see go to so many events so many people you can meet so go and go and just soak up all that information that's out there secondly don't be afraid to have your own opinions don't just because a company has worked in so many in such a way for a while test it i've loved working at the drum where we brought in so many new younger people young people who had great ideas uh, and we let them run with them sometimes they crashed and burned sometimes they were brilliant but you've got to let people try these things so my other bit of advice would be try and work for great people try and work for people who will let you try things and who will give you guidelines give you advice but ultimately 
aren't afraid to let you fail occasionally. I think that's great advice. So the last question then, Andy, I wanted to give you the opportunity to tell people how they can find out more about Blue Stripe Media and more about you. How can they stay in touch with you and follow you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at the uh, hugely uncontroversial uh, handle at Andy Oaks. You can find me on LinkedIn. The website, which will be bluestripemedia.co.uk. Brilliant. Okay, well, I think that's, that's uh, some great ways for people to be able to follow you and stay in touch and, and see all the developments as you're no doubt going to be pioneering in, in content marketing in exactly the same way you've been pioneering in, in publishing up until this point. So Andy, it's been great to talk to you and hear so much. I've really enjoyed talking about the history of the online advertising space and being able to hear your story from you know quite early days on there, right up to recently and some of the really exciting things you've been doing in programmatic and now with content marketing as well. So thank you very much for joining me on the Clixie Digital Marketing Podcast. Thanks, Tim. It was great fun. Find more episodes at clixie.com forward slash podcasts or follow me on Twitter at Tim for Change. We'll be talking to more of our experts over the next few weeks. Until then, keep up to date with ClickZ and don't forget to review us on iTunes and Stitcher. ClickZ, the original digital business intelligence company founded in 1997, providing best practice advice, trends and insight from leading analysts and practitioners to a global community of more than 300,000 digital marketing and e-commerce professionals. Thank you for listening and bye for now.